Couched lets you in on what leading cultural influencers and psychoanalysts are thinking about the world today. We will feature conversations with artists, scientists, and changemakers about our current political climate, social injustices, and our struggle to find sanity in an increasingly uncertain world. Hello, I'm Dr. Ali Merchant. And I am Dr. Billy Pivnik. And welcome back to Couched. We would like to start by first noting to our audience that Billy and I are hosting today's episode. We'll be rotating with Romy, who will be returning to co-host our next episode with Billy. So please be on the lookout. Today, we're thrilled to welcome Drs. Ricardo Ainsley and Angela Garcia. Dr. Ainsley is a professor, author, filmmaker, and psychoanalyst who explores the intersection of psychology and culture through such topics as the psychological experience of immigration, ethnic conflicts within communities, and the relationship between the individual and collective identity. He holds the M.K. Hage Centennial Professorship at the University of Texas, Austin, and has received many prestigious awards for his contributions to science. His extensive work in Texas and Mexico propelled his inquiry into how communities function and transform in response to significant conflict. He's written four books, including The Fight to Save Juarez, Life in the Heart of Mexico's Drug War from 2013, and produced and directed five films, including, for today's purposes, Looking North, Mexican Images of Immigration in 2006. For more information on his creative, clinical, and scientific work, you can visit his website at ricardoainsley.com. Dr. Garcia is a professor of anthropology at Stanford University, whose work engages historical and institutional processes through which violence and suffering is produced and lived within Latinx communities. A central theme is the disproportionate burden of addiction, depression, and incarceration among poor Latinx families and communities. She is the author of The Pastoral Clinic, Addiction and Dispossession Along the Rio Grande, and her new book, The Way That Leads Among the Lost, Life, Death, and Hope in Mexico City's Anexos, will be available in spring 2024. In addition to her academic and literary career, she has worked as a baker, hotel maid, corset model, dishwasher, phone banker, record store clerk, HIV activist, waitress, and also detox attendant. For more information on her, you can visit her website at anthropology.stanford.edu slash people slash Angela dash Garcia. Angela, as a psychologist working in a community mental health, I was extremely moved to read your writing some years ago, recommended by my then student. Also, being an immigrant and working with communities that are primarily of color, but not always Indian like myself, I'm aware of a different texture of care that takes place when we share histories and language, both for my patients, but also for myself. I find myself curious about those who care for their people, in quotes, and experience themselves as being cared for through the mere act of serving their own communities. Could you perhaps speak to this from your own experience to start us off? Yes, thank you for that question and for inviting me to be on this podcast today. 
care is the central sort of theme of my work. And one of the things that interests me about care is how difficult it is, how much it can feel like a burden, but also the ways in which families, communities, friends continue to care for each other, despite the disproportionate burden of care that falls especially on women and girls. One of the things that propels me to move forward in my own work is the question of why is it that we continue to care for each other despite the challenges that care presents? And I think that being grounded in families and communities and language, you know, a sense of commitment that we have to ourselves, our people, our families, is really what makes us care for each other despite all of the challenges and the burdens and the heartbreak that care often brings. And in the course of caring for one, we're also experiencing what care can feel like for ourselves. So I'm really interested in that interplay between caring for someone and receiving care through the act of caring. Again, despite all of the challenges that care presents, particularly in resource-poor settings where there isn't institutional or professional healthcare. So how is it and why is it that people continue to be committed to each other despite all of these challenges? And it's complex. It involves love. It involves desire, sometimes dislike, a sense of responsibility that can feel both life-giving but also depleting. And I'm interested in all of these contradictions and the way that they play out, especially within families that are struggling with addiction problems. Rico, you said it's in the clinician's orientation toward the patient's narrative and in the complex ways that psychoanalysis teaches us to engage the life story that patients' lives are transformed and that you apply Freudian methodology to communicate stories about events that have been traumatizing. Can you describe for us your psychoanalytic ethnography, as you've coined the phrase, and what you've learned from it? Thank you, Billy. And I also want to say thank you for having me, Ali and Billy. It's really a pleasure and to be here with Angela, whose, whose book I found really quite powerful and it's very interesting. So, Billy, to answer your question, I think about the psychoanalytic method, the investment in creating spaces within which narratives can emerge and narratives that are spontaneous and often that shed new light on subjectivity and ways that are unanticipated. What I think is the beauty of the psychoanalytic approach to life, but also particularly to people who are struggling with life in some way, is that sort of singular investment in understanding through the narratives that emerge in that space. And it's very tricky to how to create that space because it has implications or it's affected by our own subjectivities as analysts, as therapists as listeners, but that is what psychoanalysts, psychoanalysis is all about, actually. Trying to entertain those tensions and find a way of having them be constructive and hopefully transformative. So to link to what Angela just said, maybe another form of caring. Absolutely, yes. 
One thing I wanted to say about what Angela's just described that I was really thinking about throughout the reading of Pastoral Clinic is this interest in sort of community and how families and communities engage human suffering and try to help one another. I was thinking about the psychoanalytic idea of the holding environment and thinking that what challenges and what I feel I I sort of encountered in the pastoral clinic is that families and communities are themselves held by the institutions, by the broader cultural frameworks, and by the history within which they live. Those variables can be a positive resource in that effort to be engaged and helpful and supportive of of people we love who are really suffering deeply. But when there are fragmentations in that broader context, then families and communities are themselves sort of affected by that fragmentation and it can complicate those efforts. So I found that very much in Angela's rendering of Española because all of those things seem to be at work. I would really love to talk with you, Angela, about that idea of families and communities themselves being held by these structures or not held very well Mm -hmm. and how that transforms into complications. Well, thank you. One of the things that really interested me in the New Mexico research that I did was the way in which landscape and the history of the land and the loss of the land affected the Hispano community. By Hispano, I mean those that trace their ancestry back to the Spanish settlers. And these are very small, relatively rural communities. The area in which I worked was about the size of Connecticut, but there was only one ambulance serving the entire region. And this is a place that has really been considered sort of ground zero for the opioid, specifically heroin epidemic in the U.S. And so given the paucity of resources in the region, you know, the family becomes central. And the family has been central for generations, central in terms of the economic support that's provided, you know, you'll have multi-generations of people living within one household. So the household becomes a site in which care is given and received. I was very attuned to the way in which certain modes of caregiving are also, at least from the outside, would be considered problematic problematic, even to a certain extent, illegal or illicit. For example, the use of providing heroin as a, as a medicine for alleviating the pains that heroin use ultimately creates. And so I worked a lot with mothers who would talk about heroin as being medicina, as being medicine, and they would treat their children with heroin in order to relieve the pain that heroin produces. And so from the outside, that looks really problematic. But from the inside, through really close anthropological engagement over many years, it makes sense. It makes sense that heroin would become a medicine, even though it is also the thing that kills. And families have to grapple with that in the absence of other forms of care. So much of my work was really focused on how the household 
itself. And then the household for generations has been the site not only of caregiving, but of economic support, of material support, and also the space where culture is transferred from generation to generation, language, food, different modes of living on the land. And those structures are being really challenged by intergenerational, the problem of intergenerational poverty, the problem of hyper-incarceration and communities of color. And so those burdens that just become at times overwhelming for families and for communities and certainly the ones that I work in and that I'm from personally. I'm from a you know, community in New Mexico that is really beleaguered by the problems of addiction and poverty. So this runs really deep for me and it's something that I continue to grapple with as a daughter, as a mother, as a community member. I see the way in which we're constantly experimenting with the arts of caregiving in the absence of professional care support systems. I'm oftentimes very moved by the ways in which people develop forms of care for their relatives, even when those forms of care can be really challenging to observe. But I think Sticking with the story, and this is where I I think that there's such resonance between what anthropologists do and what psychoanalysts do, really being attuned to narrative and to the textures of people's lives, we come to see, you know, the complexity of something we call care, which is a really simple term that actually encompasses such a complex, multifaceted experience. And yeah, I was very moved by the narratives that you include in your work of people coming to the U.S. who come with such tremendous trauma from violence that they've experienced, especially in Mexico. And that attunement to the multi-dimensions of violence that you display in your work really resonated with me and with my work. And I think so much of it is, again, sticking to the story, sticking to the narrative, trying to create ties between your patient or interlocutor that are long-term, that are open. And so I think that there's this wonderful dialogue between anthropology and psychoanalysis that I was made very aware of when I was reading your texts. Thank you. And I couldn't agree with you more about the affinity between psychoanalysis and anthropology. It just seems the same sensibility is at work. And it is about trying to understand the nuances and being interested in the subtleties of experience and the various manifestations and being able to hold the contradictory manifestations, mm-hmm. which appears a lot in your That's something that I think we as humans require. If, and if we can't do that, then we lapse into much more truncated understandings of mm-hmm. what people are living. Yeah, absolutely. For example, when I was working with addicts who were in detox and also going to NA meetings, we would oftentimes have people who were involved in harm reduction programs come and talk to the group. And, you know, they would use language like tough love. And that language just didn't resonate with the kind of love that people in the communities that I work from and myself are from. Tough love didn't really make sense. 
love being so much more complicated and toughness only being one aspect of it, you know? So I think that there's this language and almost like these recipes that we fall back upon because things can be so complex and overwhelming that we need some basic tools. But I often feel that sometimes the greatest tool is really to let tools go and to just sort of sit in the face of the other and just allow what is going to transpire to transpire. And and that obviously requires trust, which is something that the anthropologist, like the psychoanalyst, tries to cultivate over time with a patient or a subject interlocutor. I was really lucky when I was in graduate school, Arthur Kleiman was my supervisor. And he, of course, is trained as a psychiatrist, but also an anthropologist. And he really taught me the power of narrative, both in psychiatry and anthropology. I wasn't trained in psychiatry or psychoanalysis, but I definitely felt this, as you put it, an affinity to those fields. And one of the things that I've always been really interested in is, is trying to bring those talents and that perspective to underserved communities. And that's really challenging. That's a really tough thing to try to do, to try to convince people. I often receive emails from nurses who work in the one hospital in the Española Valley, and they really lament the fact that they could only handle it for a year or two, and then they had to move on because it was just too hard. And it is hard. I'm sure that the really heartbreaking narratives that, I, that I've read from your work How do you sit with that as a psychoanalyst, as a friend, as a concerned community member? It can be really difficult to sit with these narratives, but I think it's absolutely essential that we do. What you're describing, I think, also is about tolerating ambiguity so that something new can emerge that has a certain utility that wasn't there when they were caught up in the melancholia. You describe melancholy as this having a hold on us in a way that subverts our being able to sort of engage in our lives. But holding that tension and tolerating those emotions from that can come something very powerful. Yeah, I just was reading a book by Simone de Beauvoir called The Ethics of Ambiguity. And she talks about how it is through the ambiguous that something really powerful might emerge and that holding that ambiguity is actually an ethical stance. It's not a stance of not caring or or not being dedicated to discerning what's going on. Sitting with the ambiguity is what allows difference, newness to emerge. Mm -hmm. And so I think ambiguity is very difficult to live with. But I also think that it is a sort of essential space in which life takes place. Admitting ambiguity as a scholar, as an analyst, actually, we can might think about it as vulnerability too. Ambiguity is a form of vulnerability. And that being really an ethical mode of life. That's something that that I'm very interested in. And in terms of melancholia, one of the things that I was very sort of attuned to was how people who experience melancholia, which is the framework that I chose to sort of work with in my thinking and my work, also saw it as a kind of ethical mode of life. It was as if they were holding on to a kind of grief and a kind of sadness that they actually did not want 
to move away from. But that grief, the grief of loss of land, the grief of loss of people, of parents, of children, of opportunity, was something that people held on to and talked to me about in this way that made me realize how important it was just to stick with it, stick with the stories and not try to quickly press into some kind of recovery, but to really allow the absence of recovery to be a site of emergence and relationality and care. I imagine that that's something that you too are faced with in your own work when you're trying to piece together the life histories of people when those histories may emerge in contradictory ways or there are lots of silences. How do you begin to piece together a life and without knowing every detail of that life? Nevertheless, we try. And I think that that's what I as an anthropologist prioritize over everything is just presence and trying to piece together life stories over theory-making or over-argumentation, but really just sticking closely with the story is, has always been the mode that I've worked in. And then I sort of let other people do some of the other work, you know, from, from the work that, that I, the material that I produce. It reminds me so much of the fact that we're living in a therapeutic culture today that is so oriented toward the opposite of that. What we're here to do is to reduce your anxiety, reduce your depression, reduce whatever it is that you brought here. And we're going to spend the next time with giving you tools so that you don't have to feel those things. And I know a lot of people actually benefit from those practices. And so it's not that, but that is a fundamental orientation is one that doesn't invite this space that we're talking about now, where you can live with your depression and not be so terrified of it in the sense mm -hmm. that there's something essential about you that mm -hmm. lives there and that you need to know, that you need to engage because at the end, it's about you, also about your community and about your history and your, your cultural space but it's all something that it's okay to have present in your life and not be so quick to excommunicate it because that excommunication subverts ultimately really knowing yourself and knowing what that is in you and why lives in you, right? So I think that's really powerful. And the other association I had is toward the end of your book, you talk about how managed care comes in and the tools that it's offering are really tools that aren't useful mm -hmm. to the addicts. They live within some empirically validated space, whatever that may mean. And so therefore there's this attempt to universalize these techniques and these tools and apply them to everybody who has this apparent symptom. But we can see it in these more textured narratives and in what happens that they can be very problematic mm -hmm. in terms of people and communities being able to really work on these issues. 
Yeah, I think actually there's a real danger towards trying to universalize certain modes of the provision of care and also the potential, you know, what do we miss when we talk about evidence-based medicine? What do we miss when we talk about a kind of universal notion of human rights? I think that through this sort of impulse to universalize care and knowledge production, we really risk losing the nuances of life. And we also risk marginalizing and criminalizing people who live differently, whose method of caring for each other doesn't look like it's evidence-based. That may look quite the opposite. But if we sort of stick with it, we might find something really illuminating about the way that people care for each other. One of the things I'm always sort of rallying against is this impulse within medicine and addiction medicine to universalize the way in which care is provided. Because I just witnessed in my work how those methods not only can be not applicable, but can also be quite marginalizing and quite dangerous for communities that live differently. There's a lot to think about there. Rico, I was actually reading this line from your chapter on the social imaginary. And the line is, the concept of the social imaginary will help to frame our understanding of how larger social and cultural messaging impact and are incorporated into the psyches of migrants, producing an internalized dialogue between the individual's feelings and experiences and society's expectations. And then you compare that to Freudian superego information of it. And I'm not sure why this happened, but my association to this went to a Bollywood movie. It's called Bop Numbery. It's a really funny movie that we watched in the 90s growing up. And it was about a father-son team of con men. And one of the cons they play is about how they con these young like labor kind of guys into paying them money to transport them to Dubai. So from Bombay to Dubai, that's the transport they have in mind. And they're going to go to Dubai. And once they go to Dubai, they're going to make a lot of money and they're going to come back and bring their families some riches. And that's the whole experience of that con. And so what ends up happening is that a third person that they have hired to sort of con them further puts them on a boat. The boat takes them around Bombay to the other side of Bombay and drops them off there. And while they're doing that, he puts them to bed and he says, go to sleep. Dubai will be here in the morning. They wake up, they land ashore, and then the boat leaves. And then these guys show up to like a random house and they're like, oh, we're ready to work here. And they say, you're still in, in Bombay. You're not in, you're not in Dubai. And the whole con, the reason I thought of it was in terms of the superego was we laughed at these guys for being so stupid, for being conned into this, right? Like that, that their dreams and their hopes were not considered, but rather it was the intelligence of these con men that they could take advantage of these guys that we were kind of identifying with in that moment. And the lack of empathy for these guys was kind of highlighted. And I thought so much about that in terms of the social imaginary and the formation of the superego in part, as I was reading your paper, because of how it becomes infused really within our cultures, in our pop culture even, that the migrant is the fool. 
And the migrant should be the one who should think through this plan, think through this idea before being taken advantage of, that it's the migrant's responsibility to care for oneself. And so I'm thinking about that in terms of also Angela's thoughts around care. So it's not a question per se, but just an association to this very silly movie. (laughs) Well, so... The idea of the social imaginary, which is from Castoriad, is, is for the documentary film Looking North. I asked people, do you have a friend or a neighbor or relative who's gone to the United States? This was like a Michael Moore-style documentary, a Man in the Street. I interviewed over 30 people, everything from teachers to cab drivers to shoeshine people, just the whole gamut, but all interviews that I did on the spot as I found people. Of all the people I interviewed, every single one of them had a friend or a neighbor or a relative or all of the above. And this was in Mexico City. And so the first thing to note about that is that many Americans assume that Mexican migrants come from primarily from agricultural settings. While that's true for a lot of people, there's just many people for whom that's not true. But what struck me was also the representations that people had about migrants who'd left. And they were much more complex and ambivalent than I had expected. And so you had some people who talk about migrants as courageous is heroic. They're very aware of the challenges and the dangers and the crossing, of the dangers of the coyotes and the people who are they're having to pay and trust their lives with to get them to the border, not to mention once they cross and U.S. migration and all of that. So there's that narrative. But then there was also a very powerful narrative, which was they go up there pursuing the illusion of the dollar. And what they don't understand is that they get there, all they do is work, everything costs them more. They could have what they have there here, but they're pursuing this illusion. That maybe doesn't do justice to that narrative, but there was that something in that register, you know? And so the way that I was using this and that article is the idea that all of these attitudes that friends and family in your community, and maybe even Mexico as a country itself, all of those attitudes you bring with you, they live in your head. They're part of what's shaping, in fact, your motives and your experience once you cross that border and are living in a community in Austin, Texas, or in Los Angeles, or wherever it may be, New York, New Jersey, those voices are alive and powerful. And yet, in many ways, they're subtle and unconscious, but they do shape the experience of immigration in ways that seem really substantive. So that's what I was trying to speak to and so, the, of course, that ties in with the idea of the superego in the sense that Freud was trying to account in some way for this dimension of experience that wasn't the nuclear family, wasn't grounded. It might be mediated through the nuclear family, 
but it didn't originate there. It was as your parents uh, presented it to you or insisted upon it with you. So that's the way in which I felt that this notion of of the social imaginary dovetailed nicely with our notions of the superego, except that I thought it gave more complexity to the social. And it's slightly different angle on what some relational analysts think about as the social unconscious or part of social psychoanalysis, where they talk about the normative unconscious, right? The parents mediating the norms of society and that we're taking in completely unthinkingly, unquestioningly. But by giving it the term the imaginary, you leave so much more space for all the illusion and dreaming and mystical power that ideas can have in our mind, especially when we're young, right? Which I think takes me to the idea that I had when I was reading both of your works sort of side by side, that Angela, you were talking about the elegiac addict, the idea that the pastoral is part of this, right? And of course, the pastoral is a literary trope as well as a landscape. And I think you did such a creative job of combining those two ideas. And then I'm reading Rico's work on the cases of migrants, and it seemed to me that the the folks in the Española Valley are the same people, only 300 years later, that 300 years ago, right, they are descended from, as you explained it, and I'm not sure I have this right, but the Hispanos, the original Spanish migrants to this country in the 17th century. And so you've got the same population that Rico is talking about. And you said that the addict's narratives of heroin use were often related to mourning a lost sense of place. But then also you were elaborating the ways that time was important through history and that each generation brought a different structure of feeling to that loss, that the elders worried that the younger generation was too willing to forget the past. The younger generation felt that it was the only way to cope with a past that they couldn't rid themselves of, all the years of trauma through generations. But the the temporalities are interestingly layered. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't expect this, but I was very aware when I would ask questions about addiction, they would often move the conversation to conversations about land grants, about land loss, about the loss of a home, the loss of a job. And those narratives were very much entangled with the story of addiction. And one of the key stories was the story of loss of land over generations. And there's a term in Spanish called querencia, which means heritage. And it's a really powerful notion among many Latino communities, but in New Mexico, it's something people will talk about their querencia. And that being very much grounded to a notion of living on the land. And now a lot of younger addicts, a lot of second, third generation addicts talk about their querencia, their heritage as being an addict being addicted to heroin, that that is what they received from their families, not the land, not the livelihood, not the family rancho or home, but actually this thing that is in the blood, which is addiction to heroin. And so people talked about the sort of new mode of querencia, the new mode of inheritance and heritage as being something 
that is quite destructive, but nevertheless has the same power and hold over people as a kind of previous earlier notion of what one's carencia is and composed of and how it is expressed. And so I was really struck by the way in which people reimagined this cultural trope of inheritance and heritage to really speak to the problems of the times. There are just so many new shades of meaning. And I was trying to get to the multiple shades of meaning when I would talk about the pastoral as being not only that being attached to the landscape, or but also modes of caring, like pastoral care. Querencia is a part of the social imaginary of addicts in northern New Mexico. I was interested in this idea of the social imaginary, which is so central to what anthropologists are 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 interested in as well. And you connected it to land-based recovery, the idea that some of these clinics were trying to bring people back to the land as a way of creating a place for healing, which was frustrated. It was not a successful clinic that you were talking about in that chapter. Right. A lot of young people didn't want to work the land anymore. They didn't want to go back to this earlier notion of what it means to be a thriving member of a community or a family member. You know, they would talk about the geographical cure. The only way I'm going to kick this is to get the hell out. But getting out is so, so difficult. And so the attempt to draw upon the land, which has been so meaningful for centuries, to draw upon the land is a possibility for recovery. Now, I don't want to say it was a failure because I think for some people it was really meaningful. And it was meaningful to watch these addicts leave the detox center to go work in the, on the land and to not know what they were doing. You know, so this idea that, you know, they knew what they were doing because they're Hispano and they've been doing this for generations, they didn't know what they were doing. And they weren't feeling that connectedness to the land in the way that the director of the clinic imagined they might. But then managed care comes in and that kind of flies out the window. That's no longer part of the plan for care. Even just the length of time that one can be seeking care in the detox clinic, that changed. It went from being a residential space to being intensive out care. So people would just go to a meeting, go do their time in the clinic, and then they would go home to a family that was using heroin. So the geographical cure becomes very, very difficult with those circumstances. We only have two more minutes, so I wanted to make sure that if Rico and Angela, if you had anything else you wanted to say to each other. I just want to say that I really appreciated your ability through the work that you do to paint a picture of why people come to the United States, why Mexicans in particular are coming to the United States, not just for economic reasons, but because they are fleeing tremendous violence in their communities. And I think that that's such an important story that is not getting the attention that it deserves. So I thank you for that. Thank you. Well, I think there's a connecting thread here, Angela. So I was just listening to an interview with Donovan Ramsey, who wrote a book about the crack. The book is The History of the Crack Era from the People Who Lived It. And it reminded me a lot of your book also. What made that change in the Black community was that at a certain point, 
the black community stop looking for external solutions, having been frustrated over and over and over again, knowing that they weren't going to come from out there. And he had uh, a lot of examples, for example, the rap music at the time, taking on the, the problem of crack in the community. And so basically his thesis is that the community itself is where the answer to this came from. That's also what you're speaking to in these communities in New Mexico as well, ultimately, that we need to listen to and the communities themselves are wrestling with this because the external resources and concepts and structures just haven't done what they promised. In the violence in Mexico, I often think about the same thing. Where's the solution to this violence going to come from? The Mexican government has launched the military and these, you know, all of these militarized forces and the U.S. government has tried to seal the border and all of these things that have been done, but nobody has solved this. And it makes me feel like at some point communities themselves have to come together and try to speak to what's happening to them because these structures aren't going to, maybe they can't, I don't know, or maybe they don't have the will, but the solutions don't seem to be viable, the ones that are coming from the outside. Absolutely. This brings us back to where Ali started us off, about the importance of seeing self-care as growing out of caring for our own communities and recognizing that our communities can hold us in ways that can't be replaced just by institutions or systems. Unfortunately, we have to stop for today. We're at our time limit. Thank you so much for joining us for this really moving and stimulating conversation. I know I'm taking away a lot to think about. I'm sure our audience at large is as well. Well, thank you all for this podcast. Thank you both for being here. Yes, thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for listening to Couched with Drs. Billy Pivnik and Romy Redding, brought to you by Division 39 of the American Psychological Association. Mm-hmm.